This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Federal Highway Administration, part of the Transportation Department, must oversee spending of some $350 billion from the new infrastructure bill. Now the FWHA has a new executive director. She's a 20-year veteran of the agency, so she's not starting from scratch. Gloria Shepard joins me now. Ms. Shepard, good to have you on. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. And just making sure we can set the scene here, just spend a few seconds telling us precisely what the Federal Highway Administration does. Probably obvious to you, but I'm not sure everyone exactly knows. The Federal Highway Administration is a mode of the U.S. Department of Transportation. And our mission is to oversee and to provide for a state-administered, federally-assisted program. And that means working with the states and some other stakeholders like the Metropolitan Planning Organizations, including some locals also, to administer their highway system. And the highway system includes not only roads, but it includes bridges, sometimes ferries. And there's also interconnections among the modes. So you have uh, multimodal projects, so a project that crosses not only federal highways, but federal transit and also federal rail administration. So we work with all 50 states and we work with uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico to ensure that their programs, that their highway programs are being constructed and maintained in a way that preserves the integrity of the the, uh, American economy. All right. And now there is $350 billion specifically from this new bipartisan infrastructure bill. How does that compare to what you normally have in a given year for grants and so on? Okay, this bill is a a larger bill than I've ever seen in my transportation lifespan, including at FHWA and previously in two other states. So the infrastructure bill, as you said, has provided $350 million of funding over five years, including the largest dedicated bridge investment since the construction of the interstate highway system. That investment has helped launch 2,800 bridge repairs and replacement projects across the country. We're also working to implement more than a dozen new highway programs under the law that can reduce carbon emissions, make our transportation system more resilient, and remove barriers to connecting communities, improve mobility, and access to economic opportunity. So $350 billion over five years. I mean, what do you normally have in a year? In the 200s, 250s, 260s, this was a, obviously an astronomical increase in funding for the highway system. You've mentioned 2,800 bridge repairs and a dozen new highway projects. Are the applications coming in at a rate that you're able to handle them? Yeah, you got to make a distinction between the formula program and the grant program. The formula programs are disseminated and allocated by law. So that happens automatically. The states get their allotments and they determine how to spend those dollars based on their state's needs. Then you have the grant programs, I think, which you're alluding to, where we have put out a notice of funding opportunity and potential recipients, eligible recipients of the different grants will apply for the grants. And the successful receivers of those grants will then implement the projects. Yeah, this is a significant difference and increase in our workload because obviously the formula programs go out as usual year after year after year and the states implement them and we're tied into the state systems, their financial systems, they're tied into ours. But working with individual applicants is somewhat different because they don't have the same level of expertise and sophistications and systems that the states have. So we have to do more outreach and interaction with them to make sure that 
first, they meet the qualifications. Second, that they can implement the projects, which means getting them through the, the NEPA process and getting their programs, get their projects on the statewide transportation implementation programs, which are run by the Metropolitan Planning Organization. So it requires a lot more interaction from our divisions with direct recipients, way more so than with the states. Right. So if a small town or a medium-sized city, say, wants a bypass road and they apply for a grant to it, you just don't hand out the money. They've got a lot of interaction to do at their own state level and also at the federal level before that can get built. We have a lot of interaction to do with us, yeah. And if the state is helping them administer it, the states will be the project sponsor. If the state is not helping them implement it, then the federal highway becomes the project sponsor. And there's a lot more interaction between the divisions and the actual applicants. We're speaking with Gloria Shepard. She is the new executive director of the Federal Highway Administration. And with all of this extra spending from the infrastructure bill, did you also get a few billets in the agency so that you can get some people in to help with the workload? Yes, we did. We received additional dollars for staffing and other resources that we need to carry out these kinds of projects. What we did, first of all, was we convened a resource and staffing work group to assess the hiring needs and how to implement, uh, better implement the um, IJJA. The group included representatives from all over the parts of our agencies. And based on the findings and thorough evaluations of our program, we approved and hired, process of hiring 215 new positions, new people in positions to help support the critical objectives established by Congress. Our plan has maintained flexibility to add additional resources as projects are awarded and as deemed necessary for state and local partners' ability to implement the program. Additionally, we have strategic staffing plans in place. We maximize the use of various hiring flexibilities, basically so we can get the appropriate staff on as quickly as possible. So we receive some flexibilities in being able to bring people on quickly. And what do people need to know? I mean, I imagine they have to know the, I can't imagine the myriad of regulations and laws regarding the granting process regarding the establishment of projects in different areas and all of the overlapping jurisdictions and laws? Do they also need to know things about roads and bridges and how they're built and some of the engineering aspects of it? That's correct. Based on the program areas, we just mentioned infrastructure and the road and construction and implementation. They will bring on the appropriate staff, perhaps people with engineering backgrounds, people with pavement backgrounds, and people whose backgrounds are directly related to the implementation of their side of the program. Getting projects in the process, um, that's more the environmental and planning side of the house. So they will bring people on who have backgrounds in those areas and know how to get the applicants through the process, the NEPA process, and get their plans in a position where they can be awarded from the statewide systems. And by the way, you've been in transportation, as you pointed out, for quite a few decades now at the state level and the federal level. Has there been any advancement in the way roads themselves are built? I mean, if you look at every other area, cars are way different than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. How about roads? Are they still basically the same six layers that they were when the Romans started them? No, <laughs> no. there's been a lot of changes in the technology and the way roads are built. For example, safety considerations, the design of roads and how they're designed to maximize safety. Because, you know, you have to consider that everyone's not going to drive the um, sign state speeds. And so, so you need to design 
roads that will actually enhance the safety for those who may not adhere to the laws. It also is uh, conditions of different roads and the pavements, materials that go into pavements, obviously to be more sustainable and to be more adaptable with regard to climate change and resiliency and adaptation. So, you know, a lot of different places in the country have different climatic events, weather conditions. So they need to use different pavement ingredients um, in order to sustain the impact of climate change. And so uh, there's a lot more science, a lot more technology that go into building roads than even back when Interstate was uh, first developed under Eisenhower. So there's been a monumental changes in uh, infrastructure and how it's developed and, uh, and implemented, basically. You know, there's a lot of safety improvements that go into implementing highways, like you have the rumble strips and you have the improved guardrails and all those kinds of things in order to enhance and advance safety needs of the driving public. Because as you know, the fatality rates for drivers and other users, bike pet users, have been astronomical. And so in order to try to alleviate those numbers or mitigate those numbers, there have to be other kinds of uh, technology and consideration used in the highway system than were present in previous times. Sure. And you have had an abiding interest in this. What draws you to the transportation and road and bridge infrastructure part of everything you could be doing in the federal government? What draws me to transportation is people think of transportation as highways and bridge and pavements and things like that. It's more than that. It's about reconnecting communities also. Because, you know, in the past, highways were built through communities without regard to the impact to those communities. So there's the people side of highways as well as the technical side of highways. So the question is, how can we use the transportation and specifically a highway system to reconnect communities that were historically divided? And so working with the states and the locals to develop ideas, to implement ideas like caps, you know, put over highways so it can reconnect communities that were separated or implement bike pedestrian pathways that will link communities or look at displacements um, that highways have caused throughout its history and not just saying, okay, we're displacing 100 people here. You know, it doesn't matter. We'll give them fair market value. And so, no, you got to look at displacements and see the impact on the community because of the transportation system and how we can provide mitigation that is not only required, but that is available to enhance those communities. So highways is more than just about bricks, cement, pavements. It's about people also. And so I think, you know, in addition to the technological side of it, the people side of it is what attracts me also. And I'm curious about one of the aspects the administration has been pushing and seems to be where the country is going, right or wrong, and that is with respect to being able to charge electrical cars anywhere. And, of course, the highway system, you know, you just put a tank in the ground and you can build a gas station. What's the thinking in how to make sure that the infrastructure is in place because there have to be wires and everything and not just the stations for roads of the future and retrofitting existing roads to be able to have the convenience of charging where people need to? You're absolutely right. And the USDOT, specifically Federal Highway, has worked with the Department of Energy to form a joint office to look at the National Electric Vehicle Improvement Program 
and a joint office are members of both DOT and DOE and others who will look at setting up corridors, alternative fuel corridors, and a system, really a corridor system, not ad hoc, you know, charging stations here and charging, but actually build out corridors. So people who drive electric vehicles can accept those kinds of fueling without being concerned about not being able to make it to the next station for the connection. So this administration has dedicated a large amount of money and created a joint office that is uh, basically working with the states that have worked with the states actually to help the states develop state plans in all the states. Every single state has state plans on how they would implement electric vehicle charging stations. And the success of this program will do wonders for uh, the reduction in greenhouse gases. And that's obviously one of the major purposes of this program. So working with the joint office, we have reached out to all the states and we provided direct technical assistance and supports to the states in implementing electric vehicle infrastructure system and plan. And we'll continue to do so. We have some upcoming events that will further the implementation of EV charging stations. I guess the main thing needed now is a universal plug. Yeah, a universal plug and other ports that different vehicles will use a little prior to, so they can use these uh, EV charging stations. Because it's not only one port, there's like four ports to make it a more complete port. You know, you have Tesla and you have uh, CCS and a number of other ones, Chatmo. And so the idea is to make the EV charging stations function in a way to accommodate whatever port a car has. Sure, any old port and a dead battery. And you mentioned there are a dozen new highway projects already. Anything recognizable? Anything that might be in a place people have heard of? There are projects that are recognizable, I think, in people in places. Some of them are still in the environmental process, so they haven't completed the environmental process. So don't want to name them specifically because I don't want to prejudge the outcome of the NEPA process. If you look across the country and you look at uh, the major, like, bridges in a lot of states, you will see that there are plans, the states have plans to either do major system preservation and reconstruction to building actually new bridges and roads. Uh, to accommodate the sometimes the growing population in certain states. I mean, the country is not the same. I mean, there's parts, you look at the East Coast and especially the Northeast, it has an older infrastructure. So those states are maybe more into system preservation. But if you look at population shifts and where people, according to the census, have moved to, there may be need for new construction, new roads, new bridges. So if you look across the country and you pick a state, you can see a major project most likely in all those states that are designed to promote the continuous flow of not only cars, but of freight, because freight is a major part of the economy. I mean, we hear a lot about freight these days. And the key to having a robust economy is to have a good highway system. And a highway system where not only automobiles can access the roads and bridges, but trucks. And and then you... We work with FRA to make sure that there's interconnection between the railroads and the highways because everything doesn't move by highway sometimes. You know, a lot of times it moves by rail. If you look at the news these days, you can understand the importance of rail and how it advances freight. Yeah, if you ever seen those rail cars stacked with semi-trailers, then you can see the <laughs> yeah. intermodal quality of it all, sure. And any chance of getting a tunnel, say, from the Beltway to the ballpark? 
Oh, you're talking to B.W. Parkway, Luke. Yeah, we need a tunnel right to the uh, Nationals Park. There's no chance of that, huh? Nationals Park, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't don't know. Tunnels, you have to ask the state about that. But I got to tell you, a rule of thumb is tunnels are very expensive and very complicated. One of the reasons is because when you start digging below the earth, you don't know what you're going to find as far as soil conditions and other conditions. And, you know, tunnels require a lot of things that highways do not cover. You have to look at the ventilation in tunnels. You have to look at, like, shoulders on highways. You have to look at emergency evacuations from tunnels. So the states, um, they find tunnels very expensive. And for the most part, we don't see a lot of tunnels in the state's uh, state's plans. You know, you might see some, but by and large, not a lot. And by the way, since you are running now the Federal Highway Administration, do you like to drive? (laughs) You know, driving is a necessity at some points. And I actually prefer taking the metro because it's easier. It's only like three miles from my house. And, you know, you make a few changes. And now that metro is running well again, you know, it's reasonable. But there are times when I need to drive because of um, work hours or meetings or whatever. We need to drive. Um, but, you know, I enjoy both, I would think. I'm All multimodal. Right. I'm multimodal. Gloria Shepard is executive director of the Federal Highway Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. I thank you, Tom, for the opportunity to speak with you today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive on the road with you. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community oh uh, yeah almost uh shane it's almost immeasurable the things i've learned since i've been with special olympics i um, one of the things that drew me to special olympics uh when i made the move over from from the nfl uh was that my mother my grandmother my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well so all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn. Uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he faces everything with optimism and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams uh, bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the 
founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.